Well, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 is where we're going to be this morning as we uh, begin a brand new series. Some of you remember the book, the series, the book of Acts. No, we're not going to start another series through the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to begin a series on the book of First Corinthians, but Acts chapter 18 is where we're going to start. I have in my house a, uh, a box that I would say is... Uh, a little larger than a shoebox, and is probably, I would say, more valuable to me than almost anything else that I could think of that's inside that, that house. Uh, I've had it for a lot of years. Um, I've had it since before we lived where we are now, before we lived where we were in the previous place we lived. I've had it for a long time. And uh, I've given this box, this little small box, uh, a, a name. It's called My Little Susie Box. And you probably don't have a My Little Susie box unless you're married to a girl named Susie. Uh, at least I hope you don't. And, uh, but that little Susie box contains notes and cards and letters and even emails from, all, from years and years and years. Even before we were even dating, whenever I was in seminary and we were just kind of building a friendship over six hours away, uh, I, even some of those emails I have in that box. And so that box has collected a lot of notes and cards, a lot of encouragement, a lot of very special things through these years. And I call it my little Susie box. It's a, just a card of notes and letters, basically. Now, I may not remember every word spoken in every conversation that Susie and I have ever had, but I can go back and I can pull a letter from 10 years ago, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, however long, and I can pull out a letter and I can read on that letter captured her heart, her thoughts, her intentions, her desires. I can capture that word for word. I may not remember what was spoken 10 years ago, but in some instances I can, I can read it all word for word because a letter has captured that. And that's the interesting thing about letters, that letters carry the capacity to capture thoughts and to capture emotion and to capture passion and to capture desires and to capture fears. It captures all that. Letters are extremely personal in nature. And whenever you open your Bible and whenever you begin to read in the New Testament, when you take the Gospels off the table, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you just kind of move them to the side for a moment, most of the rest of the New Testament that you read is written in the form of a letter. That's why it may be a little bit odd for you if you're just kind of getting into reading the Bible and you're reading in the Bible, say you're in the, later in the New Testament and you're reading a book like 1 Corinthians, it almost feels a little weird. It's like you're reading somebody else's mail, right? You may have felt that way. That way. It's because you are. You are reading somebody else's mail. Most of the New Testament was written in the form of a letter. Some of those letters were written from a person to, uh, to an individual, such as First and Second Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy. Some of those letters are going to be written from a person to a group of people, such as First Peter. Uh, Peter would write that letter, First Peter, to a group of Christians that were scattered all over that part of the world. And then other letters are going to be written to specific local congregations, local bodies of believers, local churches. And that's what the letter of 1 Corinthians is, is an example of that. And so what you hold in your Bible there, when you turn eventually, as we will in a moment, to 1 Corinthians, you're going to be turning to a personal letter, 16 chapters, that was written. It was written as one long letter. It didn't have verses, didn't have chapters when Paul wrote it, but it was written by Paul himself, the greatest uh, uh, missionary that ever walked this earth. It was written by him to a group of local believers, local Christians in a city called Corinth. Well, what does chapter 18 have to do with anything? Uh, chapter 18 in the book of Acts captures for us how that church started. Now, this church has a history, right? Going back over 50 years, you can read certain documents that lay out how this church started, where it you know, got its roots and, and how it began. Well, the, the, book of, uh, the book of Acts chapter 18 captures for us how the church at Corinth came into be 
came into being. It captures for us all those details. So I want you to read along with me if you've got your Bible in chapter 18. If you didn't bring your Bible, we've got it on the overhead here. This is a blow-by-blow account of how the church at Corinth even came into existence. It was during Paul's second missionary journey, right? He had three of those. During the middle one, the second one, he comes to Corinth, and this church is birthed into existence. Read along with me, Acts 18, beginning in verse 1. It says, After these things, he, that's Paul, left Athens, and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Well, he came to them, and because he was of the same trade, that trade was a tent maker, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. (laughs) I kind of got ahead of Paul a little bit. My apologies to the Apostle Paul. All right, next slide. So here's what's happening. You got Paul, and you got uh, uh, Aquila and Priscilla. They're in the city of Corinth, and they're just kind of doing their work. They're they're working their trade as tent makers. Verse 4, and he was reasoning, this is Paul, in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he was trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And then he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justus a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. So here's what's happened. Paul, working his trade as a tent maker, he's preaching the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue every Sabbath. After a few of those experiences, they said, we don't want any of this, get out of here, booted him to the curb. He goes right next door (laughs) to the house of a man named Titus Justice, and he sets up there. Verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue next door, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And so the the church in the city of Corinth was birthed right there in Acts chapter 18. Paul brings the gospel. The Jews wanted no part of it. They even blaspheme. Paul sets up shop next door. The synagogue leader gets saved. Others come to Christ. There are enough there to where a local body of believers is in existence that is called a church, and the church at Corinth was born. And so years pass, and Paul ultimately writes a letter to that group. We'll cover the details here in a few minutes. But he writes a letter that you have in your Bible called 1 Corinthians. Well, what about the city of Corinth? What was the city like? This is important. We have to, we have to understand that what we're going to do today is just we're going to get a 30,000-foot view, right? We're going to fly over uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. We're not going to pull out every little piece. We're going to do that in the weeks to come. But I want to just kind of get a 30,000-foot view, uh, 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 view, and we're going to look down on the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to pull out a few principles, about three specifically, that are going to be important. And so as we fly over, the first thing we have to take a look at is the city itself. What was the city of Corinth like? And it's important to know this because it plays into the, to the, to the letter called 1 Corinthians. Well, the city of Corinth was an interesting city. It was a Roman colony in Paul's day. It was a very strategically placed city. It was uh, wealthy. It was a commercial center. It was a port city. It was located on a little narrow strip of land called an isthmus. You remember that from back in the school days, an isthmus. It was six miles wide. And on that little six-mile-wide strip of land that separated or or that connected northern Greece to southern Greece, 
It, 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 you, you found there, situated the city of Corinth. It, it was right there in the midst of that isthmus. You picture North America, South America, you know, Central America is somewhat of an isthmus there in a sense, kind of in a figurative way. Well, that's the way this, this city of Corinth was. It was right on a little six-mile-wide strip of land, separated the Aegean from the Adriatic Sea, one from the other. And what would happen was is that uh, sailors would travel there, and in order to save themselves a 250-mile uh, uh, journey sailing around the southern tip of Greece, a very treacherous journey, by the way, what they would do was they would come in and port right near Corinth, and the city was situated in such a way to where they had, had um, designed a set of rollers. I know this sounds odd, but history backs this up, to where sailors could bring their cargo and their ships and drag them on a system of, of specifically designed rollers, drag them six miles across that isthmus, and it completely uh, cut off 250 miles of treacherous travel around the southern tip, the Peloponnesus area of, of southern Greece. And so Corinth was situated in a perfect place. And you had people traveling from all parts of the world that would come through there. You had Greeks, you had Romans, you had those from, uh, from, the, uh, from the Asian lands that would travel through there. Uh, it was a, really a collecting pot, so to speak, of various nationalities, various religions, various backgrounds of people that would come through there. And what happened was is that God placed the gospel in that city at just the right time to impact the people that would travel through there. And there's a principle because whenever we begin to understand that city and how it operated, what we understand also is an overarching principle. And the principle is this, is that God in the same way also positions your life specifically to have a maximum impact on the lives of other people around you. In fact, he, right where you are today, in your setting in life, if you are a follower of Christ, he is in control of every detail of your life. Not one thing misses misses his attention. He has positioned you as a follower of Christ, as a believer, to have a maximum impact on people that surround you. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that you live in the neighborhood that you live in for a specific reason. I would assume that you prayed about where you would live. I assume you prayed about where you'd work. If not, God is sovereign. He's not a puppet bound to our prayers. He can still work outside of our prayers. That God has placed you where you are in your community for a reason. That church in Malupa Baptist Church, right? I've been there three times, three separate occasions. You just saw the backdrop of the church there. It is in the middle of nowhere. It is in the jungle. Dirt roads, you don't have paved roads running all past there. There are no stoplights. It's completely different. It is not life as we know it here. And that church sits in the midst of a place of a lot of activity. People pass by there all the time, and it's there for a reason. And it is a shining light to the people of that community. Those people who, which inhabit that church called Malupa Baptist Church in the Aurora province of the Philippines, each of them live in different barangays. And they live in different areas around that church. And they have different skills and talents and gifts that God has given them. And where they go, listen, they take Christ with them. And it is no different for you and no different for me. God has put you in your neighborhood, in your community for a reason. And if you have a relationship with Christ, you are on mission in that place. Whether you are there successfully or unsuccessfully, it's up to you. (laughs) It's not up to me or a church or a ministry or anybody else. It's up to you whether you answer that call successfully or not. But you live where you live. It may have been your choice, but God put you there first. And he's put you there to be a shining light for the sake of the gospel where you are. 
where you work is much the same way. You're not there just to draw a paycheck. You're not there just to punch a clock, get your 40 or 50 hours a week, and then go back home to where you can be free again. No, you are there where you work because God has put you there. And if you are a follower of Christ, you take the gospel, you take the person of Christ with you every day when you go to work. And either you can use that and you can leverage that to your advantage and you can put Christ on display or you can hide him under a, uh, under a basket and, and douse that light and let no one even know that you follow him. The choice is completely up to you. God has given you specific skills and he's given you specific talents and he's given you specific desires and he's given you specific drives in your life, passions in your life that make you who you are. And you have the capacity to use those in the context of ministry to make a difference. And in the same way that God positioned this city and he brought this gospel to the people of that city strategically, hey, he is doing the same exact thing in you. Here, here's a crazy thought. You, know, you speak about tithing, right? If you've been in church for a while, you've heard that, that term tithing, giving our 10% to God. It all belongs to him. We give 10% back. What if for a moment, what if Christians all over this country, what if Christians, what if believers, followers of Christ, what if we tithe our, our talents? You say, Brooks, what do you mean by this? We punch a clock, say 40 hours a week. And I'm not being legalistic with this. Just, this is just for the sake of argument. You work 40 hours a week. 10% of that is four hours. All right, what if we drew a paycheck? And there's nothing wrong with that. What if we drew a paycheck on our 40 hours a week? We provide for our families. We take care of our needs. We have a little bit of extra to use, discretionary, you know, to, to, to use as we desire. It all belongs to God, but we draw that paycheck. But what if we, we used our talents that we use on a weekly basis to draw an income? What if we tithed 10% of that? And four hours a week, we use our talents for the sake of ministry. And I don't mean necessarily working in the church. I mean, wherever you are, wherever God has planted you, you use your talents there, or you take them to people in need to put God on display. Say, for example, you're a teacher, and there are certain restrictions. You can't really broadly proclaim the name of Christ there in the, in the, in the school, perhaps, where you are. Maybe there are certain restrictions there. You have to be creative as to how you shine the light of Christ where you are. Hey, but four hours a week, you're going to use the talents God's given you as a teacher, and you're going to step outside the walls of that school, and you're going to boldly use those talents in the context of ministry to put Christ on display. Or maybe you're an artist, or maybe you're a CPA, or maybe you're a builder, or maybe you have some other talent. And whatever the skill and talent, here's what I'm aiming for, is that what God has given you that you draw an income from is not just to provide for your family. It, is, it has been given to you to put Christ on display. And more, than, more often than not, Christians only use our talents for ourselves. And rarely do you see the believer using those talents in the context of ministry for the sole purpose of saying, God, this is to honor you and to meet the needs of people in the name of Jesus. What would happen if, what would happen if just this church did that? I mean, how, how, how far and wide would the name of Christ go if we just did this? multiplied by the other churches in this city, multiplied by the other churches that follow Christ in this state, multiplied by the other churches in this country. How long would it take for the name of Christ to be made great in this nation in which we live? It's very, very simple. It comes down to one person just simply living their lives on fire for Christ. And God has strategically positioned you whether you agree with it or not, he has positioned you strategically to live your life to have a maximum impact on the lives of other people. You can do this. <laughs> you really can.
as you let Christ shine through you. The book of 1 Corinthians helps us to remember this. What about the climate in this city? You know, as we, as we fly over the city of Corinth, we begin to see some details that help us to understand the spiritual climate of, uh, of this city. When you look into the city of Corinth in Paul's day, as I mentioned earlier, it was a Roman colony. It was an interesting city there on that isthmus, six miles wide, but it was located really at the base of what was called Acrocorinth. It was a, really a, a cliff, a sheer cliff that went up. The city was at the base of this. This cliff went up almost 1,900 feet. It still does today, obviously. It was so situated that in the, in the event that the city of Corinth were to be placed under attack or to be placed under siege, the whole entire population of the city of Corinth could be evacuated up to the top, this 1,900-foot plateau on the top of Acre Corinth, and they could entire, the whole entire population could be situated on top of that plateau and could be kept safe in the event of any type of an attack or a siege that took place. On the top of that hill in Acrocorinth, there was a temple there. It was called the Temple of, Aphro- temple of Aphrodite. It was a place of false worship, false religion. In fact, historians tell us that back uh, perhaps in Paul's day, certainly before Paul arrived there, it was known that that Temple of Aphrodite housed 1,000 temple prostitutes, that every evening they would leave that temple mount there and they would go down into the city and they would basically work their trade. Temple prostitution in the sake or in the name of false religion, and every night this would take place. The city had become known for its immorality. In fact, in writing Greek writing, there was an actual Greek word that was used uh, uh, that that literally translates to Corinthianize. It meant to act the Corinthian, and, and it was a word that was designed. It was basically put into place to describe life in the city of Corinth. Now, we have certain cities in our own country, right, that are known for their wickedness. I won't name them because some of you might be from there and you'll get all mad at me. But we have certain cities in our own country, right, that, that are known for their wickedness. They're kind of known for their, for their immoral behavior. This is the way Corinth was in that region of the world in Paul's day. It was known for its immorality. It was known for its debauchery. It was known for its sinfulness. It was known for pagan religion. It was known for, for, for all of these bad things. It was known for that. And so what happens is, and if you're putting the pieces together, here's what you're beginning to see, is that in comes the gospel in Acts chapter 18, Paul's second missionary journey. He shares the gospel. People are coming to Christ. They're being saved. It is only a matter of time before there's going to be a real tension begin to take place. And the tension was this, is that you had people being saved out of this culture those with amazingly immoral backgrounds. They're coming out of this immorality and they're being saved and the slate is being wiped clean and they're being forgiven completely by God. And yet they're not quite yet who God wants them to be. There's a place where we are saved in an instant, but we're sanctified over our lifetimes, right? God molds and shapes us into the image of Christ. And there was a tension beginning to develop because what was happening was these belie- these these folks that hit, who did not have Christ were being saved, they're being brought into the church, they're becoming a part of the body of Christ, and yet they still had issues in their lives. And it's the same tension that is faced still today, and we have a choice to make. We should expect that there will be this tension, that the sins of the culture, if the culture is being one to Christ, will become the sins of the church. That's expected, but listen, it can never be excused. And if we as a church ministry, First Baptist of the Islands, if we are on fire for Christ and you're using your life to put Christ on display and you're sharing the gospel boldly, listen, it is inevitable year after year after year there are going to be people that add into this church family that have brand new in their relationships with Christ. 
And they're not going to have the maturity that comes from 20 years of walking with God like some of you may have. They're going to be real baby steps that come. And the sins of the culture, if the church reaches the culture, will at times become the sins of the church. And we have to be very careful as we do ministry, that we don't ever excuse those sins when they take place. Because what it will do is, it will rot the effectiveness of that ministry from the inside out. Let me give you an example of how Paul deals with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we've got it on the overhead here, verses 1 and 2. This is just a little slice, we'll get here in a few weeks, and we'll spend more time on it. But this is an example of how the sins of the culture become the sins of the church, as the church wins the culture to Christ. Paul says in his letter... He says, it is actually reported, he says to the Corinthian church, that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. In other words, even the people who don't know God, they're not even doing this. That someone has his father's wife. Here was the issue. Theologians will say that the phrase there, the way he words it, it means that there was a man in this church who was a believer, a follower of Christ, a part of the church in Corinth, who was involved in sexual relations, immorality, with his stepmother. When Paul says that someone has his father's wife, that's what he's referencing to. Here's the issue. The church in Corinth, uh, they, they, they began to excuse this. Verse 2, you have become arrogant, Paul says, and you've not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. In other words, Paul says, not only is there immorality taking place right under your faces in your own church here, as part of your own church family, not only is it taking place that is reflective of the of the godless culture you live in, but you're not doing anything about it. You're not acting in love to try to restore this person, to try to correct them, to bring them to yourself. In fact, you've almost become arrogant that this is even taking place. Paul begins to address this, and what it shows to us, what it, what it does is, is it begins to help us to see that there were huge issues in this church in the city of Corinth. It, it almost makes me laugh today when I, when I see churches, when you're out driving around and you see churches like Corinth Baptist Church. <laughs> I think, oh man, what in the world? Have you read First Corinthians? I mean, what Corinth Baptist Church are you talking about? I mean, because the Corinth Church I read about in First Corinthians is a church, man, they had some serious issues going on. Now, God was at work in them and God was working, but they had serious issues. We'll start them next Sunday. I mean, we'll jump right in. Paul jumps into the deep end. I mean, they had issues with favoritism. They had huge issues with disunity. They had immorality that was running rampant in some regards in the church. It wasn't being addressed, wasn't being dealt with. They had issue after issue after issue. People that didn't understand what worship was. They were misusing their spiritual gifts that God had given them. They were, they were just backbiting and factions and all kinds of stuff going on. And there is going to be, there are going to be instances that if a church is winning people to Christ where you're going to have those issues to deal with. Baby Christians are going to act like baby Christians. I've been a Christian a long time, and I act like a baby Christian a lot of times. i got issues in my life God constantly has to deal with. I would say that for every believer here, you've got probably at least two, if not three or four areas of your life where God is right now wanting to do or at work in major areas of your life where he is addressing issues of perhaps pride or greed or selfishness, or maybe it's areas of lust, or maybe there's some besetting sin in your life that you're trying to overcome, pornography or, or, or issues of lying, or you've got to, whatever it may be. We are all works in progress, right? And I completely understand that. What we cannot afford is where we begin to excuse those things. 
Because when we begin to excuse them, what it does is, in the eyes of the culture, it knocks their view of Christ down even further. And so Paul is addressing this sin. We'll, we'll get here. We'll come back to it, actually, in just a few minutes. But Paul addresses this sin in very extreme fashion. And he does that in many cases throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. And he does it because Paul understands a simple truth, and it's the second principle I want us to see. That detachment from worldly ways, from worldly living, detachment from that is an absolute essential for every single believer. We cannot afford to allow ourselves to live lives that are reflective of the world to the exclusion of the reflection of Christ in our lives. We cannot allow that. And the reason the church today has not won more people through the gospel is because the world listens to the gospel that we proclaim and they, they, then they look at the lives that we live and there is such, such a distance between the two that the world just laughs. <laughs> and when the church tries to take a stand on some issue in the media, the, church, the world just looks and says, okay, you preach one thing, but you live a completely different thing. And you know what? By and large, the world is right. And it's because there is not a detachment in the lives of believers from the way we live and a choice to live in a way that reflects the person, the purity of Jesus Christ. I remember a friend of mine, years, 20 years now, probably more than 20 years ago, he was a part of a Bible study in this city, actually, another church. He was on fire for Christ, had a close walk with God, still does to this day. I still speak to him from time to time. He was a single then. He's now married and got, a, got a, a, a family and lives in another city. But I remember he, was, he would go to this Bible study at a very vibrant church in this city. And uh, they were, it was a singles Bible study. They had a ton of singles that were coming. On a Friday night in a person's home, they would have uh, a great Bible study, an amazing discussion. I was able to go a couple of occasions. And, uh, and then they'd break off into prayer groups and they'd pray. Just a real vibrant group. And he came to me one time. He said, man, I'm just, man my heart is just broken. And he said, you know, what happens is, is that after that Bible study concludes, as a general practice, a bunch of those that were there end up heading down to River Street and hitting all the bars, and it's as though nothing even took root whatsoever. And it's an example of what it looks like to live one way six days a week and another on the seventh. And we can't sow to the world six days a week and then pray on the seventh for crop failure. Does it make sense? And that's what a lot of Christians do. Christ's not even on the radar. Living life by our own standards, by our own desires. Doesn't matter what the boundaries are. There are no boundaries. But on Sunday, I'm going to show up. And I'm going to see my priest. I'm going to make my confessions. Or I'm going to show up in my little church. I'm going to sing my little hymns. Or I'm going to carry my, my Bible with me. And I'm just going to pray that God causes all those, those seeds that I've sown this week to just fail. <laughs> and that's the substance of their Christian life. That's where the church in Corinth was. No detachment from the ways of the world whatsoever. Paul says this can't be. It just cannot be. Well, there was a third principle that we're going to see that Paul hits very, very hard in the book of 1 Corinthians. And the third principle is this, that church is a people, not a place. And it should matter as much to us as it does to God. Church is people. If your idea of church is that I wake up early, I get my stuff together, 
I get dressed up and I show up at a place on the corner of Pennwaller and Johnny Mercer. Or if you live in another city and you're here vacationing, your church is on some other street somewhere. If your view of church is that you just show up there and you come and you punch your ticket and you do your stuff and you throw something in a plate and you sing along with the songs, then you leave. If that's all church is, you have missed the idea of the biblical picture of what church is all about. Church is not a place at all. In fact, you don't even see the church referred to as a place, as a location in Scripture in the New Testament. What you find, however, is that the church is designated as a group of people. Church is a people. If you remember from the series we did in Acts a couple of years ago, church is even more than a people. It is a movement of a collection of people with one thing in common, their relationship with Christ, moving in the same direction, seeking to live their lives to put Christ on display. That's what the church is. Church is a people. It is not a place. And what I have found is, is that it often matters a whole lot more to God than it does to the people. 1 Corinthians, I'll just go ahead and tell you, we're going to move through some very difficult passages of Scripture. And we're going to move to some that you're going to think, wow, what in the world is that saying? And the reason there's going to be such a confusion and such a difficulty in understanding it is going to be because church to us means something much different than what it means to God. Remember the guy from 1 Corinthians 5 that was sleeping around with his mother, with his, uh, his stepmother? Remember him? Just read about him a while ago. Paul comes back to deal with him. Look at what he says, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 and 5. And again, we'll unpack all this later when we get to this passage. But Paul says, and he really tiptoes around this, doesn't he? He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, he says to the church through this letter, and whenever I'm with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Look at the next verses, 11 through 13. He goes on to say to the church there in Corinth, he says, actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, that is, a believer. If he is an immoral person, covetous, an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. <laughs> you look at that passage of Scripture, and you know what? If, if your idea that church is a place and everybody has a place and we should all just belong here, if that's your view of church, this passage makes no sense at all. But if we understand God's perspective, that church is a people, and it matters a whole lot more to him than it does to us. And whenever we read this passage, and we see that this was a man who was in outward rebellion, rebellious sin against God in such a way that even those who didn't know God would have looked and said, wow, what in the world is he up to? He was in such gross, immoral sin, unrepentant, flaunting it before everyone. The church was doing absolutely nothing. What Paul said is, you know what you ought to do? You ought to take him out and you ought to put him out the back door and remove him completely from that congregation, from that family of believers. Do you know why? Because he is unrepentant. He's dragging the name, the blood, the sacrifice of Christ right through the mud. And by the way, before we say, oh, how can we do that to anyone? How would you feel if you died to implement something the way that Jesus did and you were hung up on a cross for all the world to see, humiliated for something you didn't even do, and that was the cost to even bring this into existence to begin with, and this is what happens to your name? How would you feel? You see, church to God, when you unpack that suitcase, carries a lot of meaning that our little suitcase packed and labeled as church doesn't carry. It's people and it's purity, and it's unity, and it's a reflection of Christ. 
and know it's not perfection. It's being sanctified moment by moment, day by day, choice by choice, month by month, year by year, God molding and shaping those who are presented to him as living in holy sacrifices, Romans 12. And it's his work by grace, meeting us where we are, leading us to where he wants us to be. We have no room to judge one another, but we have every every right, every command as part of the body of Christ to hold one another accountable. And 1 Corinthians helps us to understand what that looks like. Church is a people. And it's not a place. And for some, for you perhaps, church has been nothing more than a place you go and your name is on a roll and you feel as though, you know, I'm covered. But you were doing more harm to the body and to the name and to the testimony of Christ than you could ever imagine, perhaps, because of some of the choices you're making. And Jesus Christ is not even on your radar. And yet you feel like, I'm fine because my name's on a list. It ought not be this way. As we move through this book, what you're going to find is is that God is going to completely realign, if you'll let him, he will realign what church and what ministry and what family looks like for you. He will begin to realign what life looks like when it's yielded to Christ. He'll begin to realign and he'll begin to sift out things that aren't, that aren't accurate. And he'll begin to replace them with truth of what, of what ministry looks like when it functions properly, of what healthy life looks like, healthy church looks like, what it looks like to use your life consistently, every part of it to put Christ on display. And what you'll find is, is that God's given you certain gifts and talents to use to make his name great through your life if you'll let him. And what you'll find is, is that you matter to him. And this church matters to him. And the way we handle ourselves and live our lives matters to him. And what we might find is that this community that surrounds us, as we continue to get it right and get it even more and more right, are going to clamor for what they see in the lives of us. Because God is an author of peace, joy, and hope, and life. And when that's found in his people, usually the culture is impacted as a result. Boy, I hope you'll commit in these weeks to come. I don't have a timeline. I don't know how long we're going to be in this book. I don't try to label those, lay those things out in advance. I just know that next week we're starting chapter 1, verse 1. And I really hope you'll plan to be here and commit. And that you'll even begin in advance to begin reading through this book, 1 Corinthians. And to pray that God will use it to impact you. His letter to you in the same way that he wrote it as a letter to that church in that day. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> thank you that it's not just a bunch of manuscripts of legal jargon lord it's personal lord first corinthians probably paul's most personal letter that he would write to any church and i thank you lord that you preserved it for us that we have it word for word and lord as we begin to go through it as a church family and as those who are attending here i pray that you teach us what it means to be a follower of christ of what it means to live a life that's pure of what it means to be in, in, in a place of being sanctified day by day as you mold and shape us and what healthy church looks like and so, God, use us. I pray that you'd mold us. And, God, that you would teach us as we move through this book. But, Father, I pray for those as well that don't know you this morning. 
And Lord, that they are here for some reason. Maybe they came with a friend or they're visiting from out of town or just needed to get into church somewhere and they've come here this morning. And God, I pray for those that don't have a relationship with you, that they would understand that the greatest decision they'll ever make is right here where they sit today to choose to turn from their sin and to invite Jesus to come in, to forgive them and to take over. And so Lord, bless the decisions that we need to make today. May we be committed in these weeks to come and may you do great work Lord, work that will last forever in us and through us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.